Eva Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm on my own today. Paul Rickard is holidaying in Europe, the lucky so-and-so. And this program, of course, is designed to make you money smarter, business wiser, and generally more successful. On today's show, we catch up with Ms. Money, Nicole Peterson-McKinnon, who says banks could sweep your redraw facility in your loan account and that many of us are throwing away something like 134000 because we have a dumb home loan. Then we'll catch up with Jane Lovell, the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia, with what I would call an unbelievably fishy story. And then we get Employer Employee Smart with David Bates, who is our go-to guy from Harmer's Workplace Lawyers when we have an employee issue. I'll get David to give us two views on big workplace issues, the employers and the employees view. But without any further ado, let's go and talk to Nicole Peterson McKinnon and find out what the banks could do to our redraw facility. Well, welcome to the program, Nicole. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, Nicole, I've got you on the program for two reasons. One, you wrote a great story only a day or so ago on what I described as people who I got dumb home loans, and I guess you, you want, want to say that they get smarter ones. But I read something two or three weeks ago when you talked about it, it quite shocked me. You said it's possible that a bank could sweep our redraw facilities in our, in our home loan-linked uh, um, d- d- uh, accounts, and that really quite shocked me. So put us in the picture and explain what we should be worried about. Okay, so this basically just refers to the ability to, um, if you reduce your repayments to the minimum, I have to stress that that's the key kind of mistake to make in this. If you reduce your payment to the minimum and you are ahead in your home loan, what will happen is that that money that you are ahead will gradually shrink until it's gone at the end of the term and you honour your sort of original contracted period if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So previously, people would, would often kind of, it's this time-honored strategy of throwing extra money on the home loan because we all know that's a really great thing to do. But that money might yeah. be money that you have earmarked for something else. Your emergency fund, it's a great place to put it, you know, mm. um, or it traditionally has been. Your school fee money, your holiday savings, everything bunged on that home loan. But what this yeah. means, so what happened was that, um, should we name the bank? Are we naming the bank? Yeah, of course, yeah. So what happened is that the the, the Commonwealth Bank, what's called recast their loans on July 1, so that they did a new minimum monthly repayment that incorporated that extra money. So if you now opt to reduce your repayments to the minimum, that money will gradually disappear, if you know what I mean, because without that money, you won't actually pay off the loan in time because you will have dropped your repayments. So it's just a big warning to be really careful about dropping your repayments. Hmm. Okay, so can I uh, work through, because some people wouldn't necessarily understand the terminology. So let's, let's kick off yeah. first of all and explain 
how a redraw facility works for those people who either have one and don't really know how it works or those people who might be thinking to have a redraw facility. So explain how that works first. Yeah, sure thing. So, I mean, I guess there's sort of, there's always been lines of credit where everything's sort of all in together. You know, you maybe throw everything in your loan, your wage um, and everything comes out and you might draw down and draw up on that loan. So it's flexible Mm. and I guess the repayments vary and that's something to be expected. This is a little bit different. This is where you've got that contract, which is 25 or 30 years. You've agreed to repay a certain amount each month, but you also have this ability as part of this contract to throw extra money in the loan and then get it back when you want it back, right? So if you've got money, it's a great place to park funds because you effectively um, earn an interest rate that's equal to your mortgage interest rate, which we know is better than you can get in any savings account by a long stretch. Mm. And of course, it's tax-free. So it's a very smart strategy, or it has been. But what they're doing is they're, they're actually kind of reducing this redraw if you make the mistake of reducing your repayments now that they've incorporated your extra money into those potential minimum repayments. So that's kind of okay. what So it's a real esoteric change, but yeah. the, the big warning I've got for people is that that redraw money, which you might be really relying on for something down the track, you literally just parked there, could actually gradually diminish now. So you need to be really careful. An offset account and holding it there is just far safer. Okay. Now we'll do that, get that in a minute. One other thing okay. you said is you, you talked about the minimum payment. Now by minimum yep. payment, are you saying the amount that you're contracted to pay off when you um, had the loan that may well have been adjusted for rising or falling interest rates. What do you mean precisely by the minimum amount? Because that's the, that's the trigger for this problem, isn't it? If you, if you go back yes. to the minimum yes. payment, that's the trigger. So yes. what, what exactly um, is com- the minimum payment? You're completely correct. So it's set at the outset and it was a particular amount of money and as repayments rise and fall, um, it will be varied to some degree but not, of course, to the exact same degree because we all know that banks have been playing silly buggers with interest rates for, well, since the the credit crack up, really. So it does vary, absolutely. And I guess that's the issue. Um, If you do sort of sign up for a direct debit of the minimum repayment only, a lot of banks do just automatically vary that. So do check, particularly if you're with the Commonwealth Bank, that you're not on this automatic variance because that's when people could get really trapped by this. That's well worth asking the question. Okay, so I guess some people, and what I always do, you know, Nicole, is is keep asking questions until I'm I'm sure my viewers and my listeners are completely comfortable. So what what if someone never, ever put extra money in and just stuck with the minimum repayments? Now, that person then is clearly not going to be affected like someone who... Absolutely not. Okay, right. No, so that's, that's what, correct. So what, that, so, that so, loan will then be 25 or 30 years, whatever they signed up for in the beginning. And, and no yeah, money and, disappears from savings or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and also what you're saying is that, you know, okay, if it's going to take you 25 years, at the end of 25 years, you would have paid off your loan. Agreed? For sure. If you yes, kept, for sure. If you kept making the minimum payment. So, so correct. What, so so what, does, what does the bank think gives it the right to, to delve, in, to take extra money when you are following the contract and making the minimum payments. 
what is the thinking that says, oh, we'll, we'll just start taking mm. a bit of this, this extra money in the regional facility? Well, see, it's not actually technically extra because what they're doing is that they're reducing what you're paying every month because they're incorporating or like sweeping in that redraw amount that you've got in there. So they're going, oh, you're ahead, therefore we yeah. can cut your repayments because that way your loan still lasts that full 25 or 30 years, right? Yeah. And they still get their full whack of interest that they could potentially mm. get. So, I mean, Commonwealth Bank said to me, look, our customers want flexibility. They want to be able to reduce their repayments as low as possible, which I'm sure some do. But ultimately, that's going to mean paying more in interest. And it's just this idea that that money that, you know, perhaps that lump sum that you'd thrown in the mortgage, that you really mm. need for something else, but you'd had it parked there very safely and sensibly, yep. may not be safe anymore. That's just okay. the only issue. You're not going to pay any more, but your lump sum that you think you've got um, could yep. gradually disappear until by the end, there's zero and you've paid out your loan and you're all square, but your savings yep. are gone. Okay. Do you know and what so I mean? Because someone, you've paid less yeah, along sure. the way, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah and, and, and that's why they think they've got an entitlement to do something like this because you are benefiting from the fact that you've been putting extra money in. But look, I guess my, yeah. my, my questions, my multiple questions to you are, first of all, you're saying make sure you don't get down to the minimum payment. So if you, if you keep overpaying the minimum amount, and just imagine you, you did put, say, $10,000 that came your, your way because maybe you got lucky on the Melbourne Cup or something like that. As long as you don't mm. go down to the minimum payments, that ten grand will be there for you to draw out when you go overseas on holidays. The new minimum, that's right. So if you, if you okay. stuck to where okay. it was initially, you're fine. You're totally fine. If you take up their offer to reduce it to the new minimum, which incorporates how far ahead you are, it will it will slowly shrink. Yeah. Okay. So that so with all this technical stuff that a lot of normal people would hate, mm. let's go to your other alternative. You say, yeah, yeah, you say, okay, don't even worry about that. Use an offset account. Now, explain to my my yeah. listeners what an offset account is. Okay, so an offset account is a magic little Australian invention, actually, which has been adopted around the world. So what it is, is a savings account that runs alongside, like it sits alongside your mortgage. And you um, effectively save on that money. You Basically, the money you have in it is net off the balance in your home loan. So if you um, have a $300,000 home loan and you have $50,000 in an offset account, you will only pay interest on $250,000. Okay? So because that is also um, you're saving that money rather than earning that money in terms of the interest return because you're only effectively earning it, it's also tax-free. So you do a whole bunch better than putting your money in a separate savings account. But the real beauty of it is this safety angle to my mind, which is Mm. this idea that it's kind of quarantined from your mortgage. You can see that balance there. It's not going to change on you. Um, You can deposit and withdraw at your own whim. You know, you don't have to get bank approval to do it. You don't have to pay anything to deposit and withdraw from it. And it just gives you that ultimate flexibility. I really, offset accounts are just genius. And that the actual mathematical savings are identical to putting the money 
in the mortgage. Even the Commonwealth Bank in the announcement, the very quiet announcement of this policy on the webpage they threw up, they have at the bottom, they have, it might be safer if you are ahead in your mortgage and you have savings in your mortgage, it might be better to put those savings in an offset account. So even they agree with that. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think we've explained everything brilliantly to anyone who is quite perplexed by the whole thing. Now, let's go to your other little topic. All right. Yeah. Your other little topic, namely... um, the the $134,000 you could save by being in a smart loan. So take it away, Nicole. Okay, well, this is my interest integrity index. And what a coincidence then that you've got some of these rogue rate moves again in the last couple of weeks because I started this index five years ago to really track these moves and to track the, the kind of excess interest that you're paying by staying with one of our big institutions, one of the big four, yep. as opposed to going with the cheapest uh, mortgage lender, personal lender, and credit card provider. So what I did was I just got the, um, the average amounts of debt on each of those, so average home loan, average personal loan, average credit card, figured out what you would pay with a big bank, the average big bank, and figured out what you could set, what you could pay with the cheapest of each of those lenders. And that difference is, I guess, the premium for, yeah, sticking with the big guys. And it has spiked. Well, let me tell you, I started it five years ago, as I said. So back in 2013, the cost was just under $80,000 excess. This is really a donation, yep. right? Yep. Um, yep. Today, it's, yeah. $134,000. So that's a 70% increase in just five years. Okay. So, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's the, what's the average size loan you're working off? Okay. So the average Did size you... loan is $397,300. It's just, it actually ticked over 400K um, a okay. month or two back, but it's just dropped below it now. So of course, for people in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, that's kind of a dream and their real cost. Exactly. Overcharge is huge. Yeah. And I've yeah. also so, so, taken that we only have one of these, you know, one yeah. um, home loan, one personal loan, one credit card. So the, the interest excess, there's this sort of yeah. out-of-pocket um uh, you know, what you don't need to pay could be far larger. Yeah, great stuff. Now, Nicole, that's fantastic. If people want to read this, do they go to the website or do they go to Fairfax for this? Yeah, yeah, you can you can um, just Google this on any Fairfax website for sure. I've yeah. got the Sunday columns there. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, as always, thanks for joining us and uh, it's it's great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Much appreciated. And now... A word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Now, I know every week I do say, note that that 3.89% home loan is the headline rate, but it's also the comparison rate. And it's always a good reason for me to remind you that when you go shopping around for a home loan rate, always ask what the comparison rate is as well. And also, remember, ours is 3.89%, and all you have to do is... Go to the Switzer Home Loan website and ring up somebody and 
uh, you'll get someone on the other line who will actually talk you through about what the situation is with our home loans. Or, and if we can't help you, I know Adrian uh, at our call centre would simply put you in direction in the direction of someone who can help you. That's what we do at Switzer Home Loans. And now let's go, go to this very interesting story involving a lady by the name of Jane Lovell. And she is the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia. And apparently, we don't know where our fish is coming from when we go to restaurants and places like that. And Jane reckons we should know where it comes from. And uh, she's agitating to make sure that that actually happens. All right, so Jane, tell us what you want us to know when we go to places like restaurants and we wisely select fish. So, Peter, all we want is for people to be able to know the origin of the seafood that they're choosing to eat. Just like you can find out in retail with the fancy um, logos that that came into force in July this year, we would really like um, consumers, when they dine out, to be able to choose Aussie seafood. Mm. Is this a a totally unique request or is there some other place in Australia where this is actually happening? Look, there's a few places where it where it happens. Um, it's mandatory in the Northern Territory to call out uh, the origin of seafood, and there's a number of ways that they can do that. But but also in um, some of our what we would call white linen uh, tablecloth restaurants, you, you know, you would have seen that. I'm sure that often yeah. the origin, I mean, even the regional um, details about the seafood are called out. So it yeah. it can be done, and we know in the Northern Territory, you know, some of the figures around the costs to for doing that are quite modest. So we, we do believe it can be done. Okay. So who, as I say, I would have thought the good quality restaurants, uh, you know, they, they want to tell us when they've got Coffin Bay oysters and whatever and, and you know, K, uh, King White, King George Whiting from South Australia. So that people, those restaurants seem to, who's pushing back against you on this particular issue? Well, um, I, I think... The main area of concern is probably the mid-range um, restaurants and some of the feedback, so cafes, um, some of the feedback that we've received is that um, you know it's you don't need to put it on the menu. Um, there are cheaper ways of doing it. You can just ask the waiter and the waiter will be able to tell you where that seafood came from. But, mm. you know, our experience... In our experience, that isn't the case. So we actually got some independent research done on that, Peter, and we found that in only 33% of the cases could the wait staff give you a credible answer to that question. You know, sometimes they say, well, it's from the ocean or it's from the fish market. <laughs> it, this is not accurate information about the origin of your seafood. Yeah, this is the kind of waiter that uh, was involved in that joke is a fly in my soup. Don't worry, sir. We don't charge for that. Um, yeah, yeah but that's yeah, that's not that's not helpful at all. But but uh, look, let me play devil's advocate because, quite frankly, I'd like to know if my prawns came from Australia or Thailand or whatever. But I would imagine some of the the restaurants would say, well, we have a uh, an expensive printed out um, you know, menu. And if sometimes the prawns come from Thailand, sometimes they come from Australia, depending on price, that's really difficult for us. Is this the sort of stuff they're, they're saying to you? Look, it is, but I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. You're not likely to be paying the same amount of money for an Australian prawn that you're, that you're paying for an imported prawn. 
So if you're changing the origin of the seafood, you probably should be adjusting the price of the dish. So they're coming the raw prawn, aren't they? (laughs) They may well be coming the raw prawn. Look, and we're not vilifying imports, and we're not, you know, we we understand that there are price points, and people, you know, sometimes want to spend a lot of money uh, on a seafood dish, and sometimes they don't, and that's fine. We just want for there to be transparency and honesty, so that people know what it is they're actually buying. So what we've said um, in in regard to that very point, if you are changing. Um, the the origin of the seafood and it's imported. So if you're swapping between um, Thailand and Malaysia and Indonesia on a on a um, type of seafood, we don't expect you to change the menu every time you do that. Just use a little I, um, and that means it's imported. You don't have to call yeah. out the origin every time. And what we find for a price point, that's probably more likely the variation that's happening. It's a, a changing uh, source internationally. It's not swapping yeah. between imported and Australian. Yeah. So, uh, are they trying... Do, the, the groups that oppose you, are they saying that you're doing this for other reasons other than informing customers about the origins of the stuff there? Because quite, quite frankly, I know my wife you know, is... is um, negative on um, some seafood from from Asia, um, and her feeling is that they don't have the same uh, tough standards that we have. And she might be right or might be wrong. But as a consumer, she's entitled to have those views. Is this what's really driving the whole issue? So for us, it is absolutely being driven by transparency. We want uh, the, the fantastic job that the Australian seafood industry is doing to sustainably harvest and sustainably produce seafood and to you know take it through to, to market we want the work of our people to be recognized and at the moment they're invisible you can't tell when you when you dine out whether you're actually supporting a local um, fishermen and the local economy. We're absolutely not saying that imported seafood is of inferior quality or is unhealthy. That is, that's not our remit. Yep. And so, is anyone in governments either is it always a fed? Was it a federal or a state issue? Is anyone out there championing your cause? Ah, uh, well. Peter, I, sometimes I feel like this is a little bit of a political football. Um, look, we have had um, champions, um, and I think you know the the current um, federal agriculture minister, Minister Little Proud, has done some great work um, in and around this space. So he started a conversation about voluntary labelling in the fast food sector. So that's you know it's it's not by any means uh, the extent of the ask that we're looking for, the solution that we're looking for, because it's voluntary and it's only fast food. But I'm pleased to say that there's been some uptake um, with Domino's recently, um, you know, on that front. So they're calling out how Australian each of their pizzas are. Um, Sadly, a little bit further investigation there. Um, I think the only pizza they haven't done it for is the prawn pizza. So I followed up with Domino's today to say, have you just left us off by mistake? What's going on, you know, in that space? Um, but I think I think we we do face a bit of a political headwind. There are some states that are that are supportive, um, but everyone's sort of saying, well, maybe it would be better to be solved federally rather than having different states bringing in different 
rules, which is what we see with occupational health and safety, and it makes it very difficult um, for people that are trying to su- supply product nationally when they've got competing um, different rules in different jurisdictions. So a national solution is what we're looking for. So I guess you know the, the bottom line is this is not a fishy story where you're just trying to um, you know improve the the economic capability of the local seafood industry. You do think essentially a, a fair um, a fair thing for consumers as well. Absolutely. So you know when consumers go into retail stores, so into the supermarkets, and they're given yep. all of this yep. information. You know, the percentage of Australianness now they can now tell about you know a number of well, the majority of products that are for sale. Yep. Um, we don't understand how that consumer then goes into the cafe next door and doesn't care. So they don't stop caring. People don't stop caring because they're dining out, and all we want is the same courtesy to be provided. And that solution that does get put forward about asking the waiter we've proven doesn't work. So we need okay. well- a better solution. Okay, Jan. Well, I wish you a lot of luck, and if I can help in any way, just let me know. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Jane Lovell, the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to David Bates, who is our go-to guy when it comes to all things about employing and, and, and employees in the workplace. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Okay, well now we're going to be talking to David Bates from Harmer's Workplace Lawyers. And David, as I said earlier, is our go-to guy whenever we have an employee uh, issue. And today I want to talk about an area that's really difficult, um, things like sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace. Now, I want both sides of the, the coin. I want the view of what employers should be doing and what should an employee be doing if they think they're a victim of such a terrible experience in the workplace. David, thanks for joining us. G'day, Peter. Now, mate, let's just talk about what an employer should do to make sure he or she runs a workplace that's not going to have a sexual harassment or bullying charge levelled against them? Well, there are two things that they can do um, at the outset. The first one is to make sure that they have a clear understanding themselves of what is sexual harassment and what is unlawful workplace bullying. And they should familiarise themselves with the legal definitions of those terms and uh, therefore, you know, form a a really good understanding of what those things mean both in law and in practice because if they don't have that practical knowledge it's going to be very difficult for them to prevent it from arising in their workplace 
And the second thing that they can do is to have good workplace policies that deal with those two issues. And a good workplace policy uh, on bullying and or sexual harassment will make sure that everyone knows exactly the types of conduct that is and is not acceptable and what to do if those sorts of behaviours become um, prevalent or exist at all in the workplace. Are you suggesting that the employer should actually get their team together and talk about it by stating what the policy is and how the, the, the business won't tolerate any behaviour that's in contravention of what the policy is? Or should it be done in writing? Look, I think it's actually both. So I think that there is certainly no harm in having some form of on-site training, some sort of employee training around these these issues. We have many clients who actually engage our firm to come in and provide training for all of their employees about bullying, sexual harassment and discrimination as well. Um, So there's certainly no harm in, in running a group session or having, you know, all employees formally trained. But you definitely also want to have these things in writing. You want there to be a paper trail that shows that there were policies put in place, that employees were informed of the existence of those policies, that they knew what they meant and understood them, and even that they were refreshed maybe at least once every 12 months. And a great way of just keeping on top of that is when you're doing your annual performance appraisals with your staff, why not have a copy of the policies handy and just ask the employees to confirm uh, in writing on something that they sign or, or tick that they have received a copy of those policies and they understand them. But I think it's both. I think having some sort of you know group session is a great idea. Educational you know training is a great idea. But obviously, you need to have these things in writing as well. Do you... Do you need to actually make sure that everyone understands what the policy is? Because one thing to have it in writing, but I can imagine that that policy that's designed, if it's done by the employer, him or herself, it could be inadequate. And I guess my question is, should they actually seek out um, a professionally designed policy so you don't have your day in court and they just say, well, this was a, a really inadequate policy in the first place. That's exactly right. Uh, they should get expert help. And it you know, never ceases to amaze me how uh, many employers will spend a lot of money getting really good advice about things like the lease for their business premises uh, or great advice about their insurance policies and professional indemnity insurance and all of those very important things. But they don't spend the same amount of time or energy investing in great advice about employment relations. And at the end of the day, the people in the workplace are probably um, the riskiest and most expensive asset um, in a lot of workplaces. So it is a great idea um, to get expert advice and if you're going to rely on a policy absolutely as you've just said you want to make sure that the policy is up to scratch um the the worst thing you could do is go to all of the trouble time and expense of having a having a policy but then discovering that your policy actually doesn't um, meet all of the requirements and of course the requirements also change over time we get cases that are decided we have changes in the law so your policy does need to keep up with those as well so if you're not getting good advice unfortunately even the best policy is going to become outdated down the track. Okay, what if you're an employee and you feel as though you're a victim of either sexual harassment or bullying? What are the steps that you you should take? 
Well, the first point to note there is that an employee obviously has uh, rights. They have rights under the legislation, under different pieces of legislation, in fact, and they have every right to come to work and expect to feel safe and secure in their workplace. So regardless of whether their employer has a policy, they have the right to raise legitimate concerns with their employer to, you know, especially raise complaints around that type of behaviour, sexual harassment or bullying. If it's not dealt with appropriately in the workplace, uh, they can, of course, go external to, to the, those internal processes. They could, for example, they could go to the Fair Work Commission on a bullying claim. Um, under certain circumstances, they could also raise sexual discrimination or sexual harassment, I should say, at the Fair Work Commission, but more likely they'd go to the human rights jurisdiction. But as a first step, they should, of course, check, does the workplace have a policy? And if it does, they should identify in that policy the steps that employees are expected to take if something untoward is going on. And most policies will ask that employee to refer the matter to their immediate supervisor or some other nominated person or part of the organisation, maybe HR in a larger business. So they should carefully follow that policy and procedure. And if there's nothing at all, then of course they should speak directly to their supervisor in the first instance, unless that person is the one engaging in this behaviour, in which case they should just skip that step and go straight to the person above them. It's such a grey area, David, because, you know, one one person's um, sexual harassment is another person's compliment. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to trivialise it at all, but we know there are very different people in the world. How does an employer uh, impart the... Um, the the feeling or the the message that um, I understand that we all have different views on this um, and uh, you know, f- feel feel free to be able to you know voice your concern um, w- when you know when others might not think you know you, you got anything to complain about I, I, this must happen all the time. How do you deal with it when the employer says, "Well, I didn't think of much in it, but you know, this person clearly, clearly does," and am I going to be in trouble because I underestimated their their view on what sexual harassment is? Well, I think what's really interesting is that we do now have very clear and well-established um, definitions of things like sexual harassment. So we know from the legal definition that's now been settled for a long period of time that a person's intention is completely irrelevant. So it doesn't matter whether a person who is accused of sexual harassment actually meant to sexually harass someone. That just doesn't come into it at all. We do want to know about the context. So the definition does look at, for example, what is the nature of the relationship between the parties? That's certainly important. Um, But even um, when it comes to sexual harassment, it's even worth noting that um, sexual harassment doesn't even need to be directed towards a person for that person to claim that they are a victim of it. So um, Mm -hmm. sexual harassment could be experienced by someone who just overhears a completely inappropriate conversation in the workplace between two people who might feel very comfortable about the discussion that's taking place, but the person who overhears it certainly is not. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter um, what other people's subjective views are about what is or is not appropriate. What matters is the legal definition. And when we have clients who come to us, let's say it's an employer that comes to us and says, look, Mm. I've got this allegation made against me or against a manager in my business. Well, at the end of the day, whether or not there was any intention isn't even a question we're going to ask because it is just completely irrelevant. Uh, And when it comes to employees, what we're concerned about are the factual situation. What were they exposed to and how did it make them feel? 
Um, and at the end of the day, that's going to matter um, significantly more than whether or not anyone intended sexual harassment to occur. We just have to go back to the legal definition each and every time. It seems to me that the employer or the manager who's involved in a sexual harassment or, or bullying matter goes in with a, a fair bit of um, a fair bit of a handicap. Like it's like, given what you said, that if it's not even if it's not directed towards someone, if it's basically something that affects that individual, it really could be a serious problem for the employer. Yeah, it really could. Um, at the end of the day, we do look at what's called a reasonable reaction. So, you know, we do we do take into account whether or not the person who is making the claim uh, is, I suppose, had a reasonable reaction to the conduct or to whatever it was that they were exposed to. So that does come into play. But it is a very serious issue. And ultimately, everyone in this country should be able to go to work and not feel as though they are going to be exposed to sexual harassment or bullying. And the simple reality is community standards have changed so much around these things in the last, say, 10 years. Um, and the, the pace of that change seems to be becoming more and more rapid each year. So workplaces have to catch up. And what happened or what was accepted 20 or 30 years ago just is not going to be accepted anymore. And the courts don't accept it either. So employers really do need to protect themselves by having good policies and procedures, stamping these types of behaviours out when they uh, identify them in the workplace, but better still, preventing them in the first place. And what about the old panel beating shop that used to have the, the girly calendars on the wall? That, they're not going to fly anymore because <laughs> anyone could be offended by those. And it just, <laughs> that's the old world that would not be accepted in the, um, the Fair Work Commission or, or, or where, was it, what did you say, where, where do let people go with um, sexual harassment? Yeah, sexual harassment claims quite often end up in what we call the human rights jurisdiction. So they're filed okay. in the anti-discrimination tribunals in the states uh, or the Commonwealth Australian Human Rights Commission. They're the most common places for those types of complaints to go. And I'm afraid um, uh, that the reality is things have changed. And, and quite rightly, I have to say, I mean, I, I don't think that the, uh, the old... Uh, calendars that you're referring to I think you know I'm 41 I remember um, you know 20 years ago that they were around the place um, I think younger workers these days would be shocked <laughs> to learn that uh, those sorts of things were once right. commonplace yeah and, and that's what I mean about the about the change that's gone on and quite rightly so I mean we, we live in a far more um, tolerant and a far more respectful society um, in, in terms of the workplace I would hope uh, and those things really have, you know, gone by the wayside and uh, they've really got no place in a modern workplace now. Now, now one last area, and I think it's a really big, scary grey area, and that is you know, what might be seen as, as bullying. So, you know, you've got an employee who's been put, put into a job and he or she is not up to it so um, and she, he or she's failing all the time and the manager is simply saying you know you're failing and what you're producing is not up to scratch um, and, and I'm sorry but it'll have to be done again those sort of situations I'm sure David have been seen by some people as bullying but in, but you know, I guess it's also you know from where I came from you know um, both the academic area and the journalism area and even the financial services area, if people are making mistakes, they're making mistakes and they have to be fixed. Mm. 
you must have come across situations where someone is actually in a supervising role just actually pointing out that this person has a high mistake rate, but they see mm-hmm. it as, as bullying. H- have those sort of cases come across your desk and what happens when you know, the supervisor is challenged as, as being a bully? Those, those sorts of cases certainly do come across our desks um, at our firm and I'm sure at many other um, firms as mm. well. And just as was the case with sexual harassment, we have a very clear and well-settled definition of workplace bullying. So it's repeated, unreasonable behaviour directed towards an employee which creates a risk to their health and safety, and that can be physical yep. or mental health and safety. What's really important to know about that definition is that in the Fair Work Act, the next provision says... It is not workplace bullying to engage in reasonable managerial action, which is taken in a reasonable way. So we have a very express carve out, if you like, in the Act, which makes it clear employers are allowed to manage their staff. They are allowed, for example, to take appropriate disciplinary action or to put an employee on a performance improvement plan or some form of workplace training because they're just not up to the task. Those things are absolutely within the purview of any employer. What's critical is that when they take those steps, they are doing it reasonably. Uh, and that's where some employers fall down. Um, and I'll use, I'll use an example here. Let's say you've got an employee who's constantly late for work. Well, it would be perfectly appropriate for you to give that employee a letter of warning, uh, a first warning for constant lateness. That's fine. But if you then blow that letter of warning up onto a a three sized piece of paper and put it up in the staff notice room with a note saying this is what happens if you are late chances are mm. you've now crossed the line from reasonable managerial action into something that's more akin to workplace bullying so you do have the right to manage your staff you have the right to enforce standards but it's the way you do it which is of critical importance well david you've given us plenty of food for thought and i think uh, lots of employers really need to think about their professionalism when they're dealing with their staff and uh, because if they're not professional, I suspect they could end up with a serious legal problem. Yeah, exactly right. All right, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Peter. That was David Bates from Harmer's Workplace Lawyers putting you in the workplace picture. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget, you can catch my daily thoughts on how to be money smarter, wiser, and more successful. Just Google Switzer Daily. And if you want stock pick ideas, try our free one-month trial of the Switzer Report. Talk to you next week. And remember, if anything's worth doing, it's worth doing for money. I'm Peter Switzer. Thank you.